This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. You're listening to American Shadows, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Dan looked like any other 40-something businessman. It was the day before Thanksgiving, and Dan arrived at the Portland airport dressed in a respectable dark suit, white shirt, and black tie, carrying a briefcase. He paid for a ticket in cash on Northwest Orient Airlines flight number 305, heading to Seattle, Washington. That November 24th of 1971, Dan boarded the plane, found seat 18C, and ordered a bourbon and soda while waiting for the Boeing 727 to taxi onto the runway. Shortly after 3 o'clock, flight attendant Florence Schaffner checked on him, and he handed her a note. She'd received such notes from businessmen away from home before. Same old line, they would be in town for a day or week and would have a lot of time on their hands. Undoubtedly, this note would ask if she might like to go to a movie or dinner. Unimpressed, she pocketed the note unread. But Dan caught her attention and whispered, Miss, you'd better look at that note. I have a bomb. The note was written in neat capital letters. The instructions were simple, sit down next to him. She obliged, and he cracked open his briefcase long enough for her to see a jumble of wires, two long red cylinders, and a battery. Now that he had her attention, he rattled off his demands. $200,000 in American $20 bills, four parachutes, two primary and two reserve, and a fuel truck waiting for them when they landed in Seattle. He told her to relay that message, quietly, to the pilots, and then to return to him. Again, she did as she was asked. Pilot William Scott contacted air traffic control in Seattle, who naturally called the authorities. At 5.24 p.m., the flight landed in Seattle. Dan had the attendants close all the blinds to prevent any assassination attempts. And once the money was delivered and the plane was refueled, he told Scott and the crew to head for Mexico City. And they did. They made another stop in Reno for more fuel, and when they took off again, two F-106 fighters followed. At 8 o'clock, the cockpit flashed a warning light that the air stair had been activated. Moments later, the tail section jerked upward briefly. Scott called back to Dan to ask if everything was okay, but received no response. Dan, otherwise known as D.B. Cooper, had jumped from the plane, taking the cash with him. And so began the legend of the only unsolved case of air piracy in America. Dramatic? Sure. An oddity? Hardly. In the 1960s, hijacking planes happened so frequently that people joked about it. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. Welcome to American Shadows. It was business as usual. Flight attendants Donna Goldner and Leanna Anderson pushed their carts through the aisle on a National Airlines flight from San Francisco to Miami. 
Both women held back yawns as they served breakfast to the passengers at 5.30 in the morning on New Year's Eve of 1969. As Anderson made her way through first class, passenger Alan Sheffield wrapped an arm around her waist, pushed the muzzle of a gun into her ribs, and told her the plane would be taking a detour to Cuba. He forced her into the cockpit where she repeated his message to the pilots. Goldner was still serving passengers when the pilot announced the flight was now headed to Cuba. She could only think, not again. She had been on a hijacked plane before, just earlier that year. There had been 159 hijackings in American airspace since May of 1961, with the majority happening since 1968. Security was lax back then. No TSA, no metal detectors, and no one searched through bags. One couple had hidden a sawed-off shotgun in their five-month-old baby's blankets and diverted their flight from San Francisco to LAX. Flight crews were trained to acquiesce to all hijackers' requests to ensure the safety of the lives on board. Some hijackers would permit the plane to land and release most of the passengers and crew before forcing the rest to travel with them as hostages to their final destination. In the 1960s, most passengers and crew felt that the hijackings were more of an inconvenience and annoyance than any real danger, even if the hijackers were armed. The most popular destination for hijackers was Cuba, including the first. On May 1st of 1961, Antulio Ramirez, an electrician from Miami, held the pilot at knife point and announced that he had been hired to assassinate Fidel Castro, but wanted to go to Havana to warn him instead. Americans disillusioned with the American dream had a certain romance with Cuba in the 1960s. They believed Cuba had created a true democracy and all they had to do was get there. One hijacker recalled thinking, in a few hours it would be dawn in a new world. I was about to enter paradise, a place where everyone was equal, where violence against blacks, injustice and racism was a thing of the past. As you might imagine, Cuba didn't offer the freedom they thought. Hijackers were often whisked off the planes and taken to the Spanish Citadel, where they were interrogated to ensure they weren't working for the CIA. Others were sent to what became known as the Hijacker House, an abysmal dormitory where people were kept in just 16 square feet of living space apiece. Some were sent to the sugarcane fields to work. Due to the media blackout in Cuba, few would-be hijackers knew what had become of the others. Thinking those before them had made it to paradise, more and more hijackers demanded to go to Cuba. So much so that in 1968, hijackings had reached epidemic levels. The hostage passengers, for their part, often wandered around Havana for a night, saw the sights, then returned to the United States. At times, Castro welcomed the planes to humiliate the United States and collected $7,000 per plane for their safe return. Hijackings between 1968 and 1972 averaged one per week. Two in a day wasn't unheard of. Passengers would kid the flight crew, go on and take me to Cuba. By July of 1968, the situation warranted a hearing before the Senate. The FAA sent Representative Irving Ripp, who told senators that unless they put in motion a way to search every bag and passenger, the hijackings would continue. The airlines weren't willing to put such restrictions in place for fear people would choose alternate forms of transportation. Two weeks later, a man by the name of Oren Richards hijacked a Delta Airlines flight. 
He pulled a gun on the first person he saw, Senator James Eastland of Mississippi, who had happened to be at that Senate hearing. The crew managed to calm Richards down, and he surrendered in Miami. A 34-year-old man hijacked a plane back to Cuba because he missed his mother's frijoles. An heir to a New Mexico real estate fortune dressed as a cowboy and demanded to go to Cuba. A college student forced a pilot to take him to Cuba so he could study communism. And on one flight from Newark to Miami, Alan Funt, the 1960s host of Candid Camera, boarded with his wife and daughter. A man grabbed one of the flight attendants and put a knife to her neck, demanding the pilots fly to Cuba. After a few tense moments, another passenger shouted, Wait a second, we are not being hijacked, it's a candid camera stunt. The passengers burst into laughter. Some asked Funt to autograph their air sickness bags. Despite Funt's attempts to convince everyone that he had nothing to do with it and it was a real hijacking, no one believed him. When the hijacker emerged from the cockpit, people applauded. But the joke was on them. When the plane landed in Havana, the laughter turned to anger. And perhaps oddly, not at the hijacker. They berated Funt for tricking them. By the end of 1969, 86 hijackings had taken place in the United States, more than any other year in aviation history. Though not all of them brought laughter and jokes to the passengers unharmed. And they weren't all short jaunts to Cuba. On October 31st of 1969, Rafael Minicello arrived at LAX dressed in camouflage. He purchased a ticket on Transworld Airlines red-eye flight number 85 and boarded at 1.30 a.m. The plane had started in Baltimore before making the journey across the country to Los Angeles. A crew of three manned the cockpit, and four flight attendants tended to the passengers. Most of the attendants were new to the job, having only been with the airline for a few months. But Charlene DeMonico had been there three years. She'd swapped shifts with another attendant so she could have Halloween night off. DeMonico and the other attendants lowered the cabin lights to allow the bleary-eyed passengers to get some sleep. Minicello caught DeMonico's eye immediately. His outfit and oddly shaped backpack stood out. And though he was polite, she couldn't help but notice he seemed nervous. Once the passengers were settled, she joined the other attendants in the galley. They also thought the passenger and coach seemed odd, and debated what he might be carrying in that pack. One thought it might be a fishing rod. Most of the flight's 40 passengers soon fell asleep, including the five members of the pop band Harper's Bazaar. They'd just come off a concert in Pasadena. Someone brushed past guitarist Dick Scapatoni, waking him. He looked up to see a man dressed in camo, holding an M1 rifle, walking toward the galley. He woke drummer John Peterson. Was this really happening? 21-year-old flight attendant Tracy Coleman must have thought the same thing. She calmly told Minicello, you're not supposed to have that. An off-duty pilot by the name of Jim Finley stood to confront the hijacker, but upon staring down the barrel of the M1, he made the wise decision to return to his seat. Minicello handed Coleman a rifle bullet to show her and everyone else that he was serious. He ordered DeMonico to walk with him to the cockpit. Once there, Minicello became agitated. He refused to allow the flight attendant to ring the bell, instructing her to knock instead. 
she hoped that the pilot would sense something was wrong and not open the door. Unfortunately, the door swung wide open. She informed Captain Donald Cook, First Officer Wenzel Williams, and Flight Engineer Lloyd Hulra that a man with a gun was standing right behind her. Minicello shoved past, pointing the M1 at Cook. With the hijacker up at the front of the plane, Finley searched the man's bags. He found more ammunition, but no other weapons. He determined from the hijacker's hair, attire, and weaponry that he must be military. More passengers awoke, perhaps sensing something was wrong. The captain's voice came over the speakers. We have a very nervous young man up here, and we are going to take him wherever he wants to go. People began to murmur about going to Cuba. Few thought about how dangerous the man holding the cockpit crew at gunpoint could be. The diversion would mean a delay in getting to their destination, nothing more. Then the captain came back on the intercom. If you've made any plans in San Francisco, don't plan on keeping them, because you're going to New York. The band members began to speculate among themselves. New York, where would they go from there? One mentioned Hong Kong, thinking that would be fun. But up front, Minicello had presented the crew with a problem. New York wasn't where he really wanted to go. He wanted to take the plane to Rome. The plane didn't have enough fuel for New York, much less Rome. Further, none of the cockpit crew was qualified to fly internationally. Minicello allowed the plane to stop in Denver for fuel. Cook alerted air traffic control in Denver of the situation, and they cleared the plane to land. Minicello let the passengers leave, and they did, quickly, where the FBI awaited them. He kept the entire crew aboard, though. On the three-hour flight to New York, Minicello poured himself a few strange cocktails of gin and Canadian club whiskey. Once they landed at JFK, he ordered Cook to park the plane as far from the terminal as possible. FBI agents knew the hijacker planned to force the captain to fly to Rome, and they attempted to approach while the ground crew refueled. Cook warned the agents that Minicello was highly agitated and to stay clear. And that's when a shot rang out. The crew was terrified. Fortunately, no one was hurt. Minicello, by this point extremely agitated, reminded them that their lives were at stake. Cook again told the hijacker that they didn't have the proper training to fly internationally. Minicello issued a new demand, qualified pilots. He held the crew hostage while the new pilots boarded. Irritated, he then demanded that the refueling stop and the plane take off immediately. New pilots Billy Williams and Richard Hastings did as told, but got through to him that there was no way they had enough fuel to make the flight, and so, once again, the plane landed, this time in Bangor, Maine. While the fueling was underway, Cook tried to convince Minicello to let the original crew go, but the hijacker refused. The plane took off again, and the crew tried to keep the situation as calm as possible. Each opened up about their private lives in an attempt to gain some rapport. Minicello asked if everyone on board was married. Cook quickly responded that yes, they were, thinking that the lie might make Minicello sympathetic. Flight attendant Tracy Coleman got him to open up the most. Minicello taught her a new card game. As they passed the time, he told her more about himself. 
his family had moved from Italy to Seattle in 1962. He'd been bullied in high school due to his accent and ended up dropping out, ending his lifelong dream of becoming a commercial pilot. He'd left home shortly afterward at 17, moving to San Diego, where he'd joined the military. After boot camp, he was sent to Vietnam. He talked about how he and his platoon had been dropped off in the jungle. The conditions were horrible, and the mission was short, and ended in a lot of deaths on both sides. He had made friends in his platoon, and watched many of them die. After the mission, he was awarded the Cross of Gallantry, and sent to Camp Pendleton. The nightmares were relentless. He and the other surviving members of his platoon were diagnosed with PTSD. Now all he wanted was to go home, back to Italy. He turned 20 in the air before the plane circled Rome's Fiumicino Airport the morning of November 1st. No one celebrated. TWA flight number 85 was now 18 and a half hours into the hijacking, and Minicello made one more demand, that they park the plane at the far end of the terminal and be met by an unarmed policeman. Before the flight landed, he offered to drive the crew to a hotel. They all declined. Once the unarmed officer boarded, Minicello bid a polite farewell to the crew and apologized for any inconvenience. Officer Petro Guli became his new hostage and was ordered to drive him to Naples. Four police cars followed. Guli drove into a dead-end alley, and Minicello jumped out and fled on foot. Five hours later, a priest found him trying to blend in at a mass, but camouflage at a church didn't work very well. Word of the hijacker and his capture spread across the globe. Members of his platoon were shocked. The media reported on his mental state, along with new information about the events leading up to the hijacking. He'd been putting money into a marine savings account and had planned to send it to his terminally ill father, who had recently returned to Italy. But when he'd checked the account, Minicello found less money in it than he thought should be there. He'd complained to his superiors, but they ignored him. Feeling betrayed, he'd broken into the store on base and stolen around $200 worth of goods. He'd stopped to drink beer in the shop and fell asleep, which is where military police found him the next morning. He was scheduled to appear in court on November 1st, and fearing prison, he fled with the M1 rifle he'd brought back from Vietnam, registered as a trophy. That was when he made his plan to hijack a plane back to Italy, deciding on the TWA flight. In Italy, he was seen as a sort of underdog hero, a troubled and scared young man who would do anything to get back to his hometown and his dying father. The Italian news glossed over his threats to the crew aboard the flight. The media there portrayed him as a victim of a foreign country's war machine. Minicello was tried in Italy instead of being extradited to the United States. He was convicted, but released just a couple years later, on May 1st of 1971. He turned 21 during his sentence. On the day of his release from the Queen of Heaven prison near Vatican City, he wore a suit. Photographers and reporters crowded around him, and civilians showed up as well, making him a little unsure of how to handle all the attention. He alternated between uncertainty and being rather cocky. One reporter asked if he was sorry for the hijacking. Why should I be, he said. It wouldn't be until he turned 31 that his attitude about his actions changed, after a friend talked him out of a violent attack against a medical facility. 
Minicello planned the attack after his wife of a few years lost their second child. It was then that Minicello promised to devote his life to God. After learning that he no longer had any outstanding warrants against him in the United States, he decided to return. There was the matter of the court-martial, though, and it's no surprise that he was dishonorably discharged. With the help of his fellow platoon members, Minicello tracked down the crew of TWA Flight 85 so that he could apologize. He gave them each a copy of the New Testament with a note inside, thanking them for their time and forgiveness for his actions. He apologized for putting them in harm's way and referenced the book of Luke, chapter 23, verse 34. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. A lot of things have changed since the 1960s. I mean, obviously, but in terms of flying, since 9-11, no one jokes about getting a lift to Cuba. Today, we have metal detectors, physical screenings, and X-ray and other imaging devices, among a whole host of other checks and balances. In retrospect, it may sound like the 60s was a free-for-all when it came to hijacking planes, but it's not that nothing was being done. In 1968, the FAA's Anti-Hijacking Task Force explored several deterrents. They invited the airlines and even the general public to make suggestions to keep planes, crew, and passengers safe. Airlines put in force those orders that all crew members must agree to a hijacker's demands, hopefully preventing any harm to themselves and their passengers. The airlines also suggested building a fake airport in South Florida to resemble Havana's airport. When a hijacker would disembark, they'd be greeted by U.S. authorities. The plan was never implemented. Not because it was ridiculous, but because of the expense. And as suggestions went, that wasn't even the most bizarre. Someone floated an idea for an ejector seat to launch would-be hijackers out of the plane. Another person filed a patent for seats that would deliver an injection through the cushions, capable of sedating or killing the person sitting in it. Then there was the offer of free one-way flights to Cuba for would-be hijackers, as long as they promised to never return. As you might imagine, Castro refused to accept those flights. That left another potential solution. Training ticket agents to spot suspicious behavior. While it may have helped here and there, far too many hijackers just didn't act suspiciously. The airlines were forced to consider a solution that had already been suggested, but one they didn't consider optimal. Basically, it was the worst option on the table, and yet very familiar to us today. Metal detectors, luggage screening, and extra security. There's more to this story. Stick around after this brief sponsor break to hear all about it. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. 
If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Since that historic day in December of 1903, when the Wright brothers first took to the sky, air travel has been a big part of American history. From planes and jets to liquid-fueled rockets, there are plenty of fascinating stories, both of ingenuity and triumph, of the dark and tragic, and of the downright bizarre. One of the strangest involves fruit flies. You see, in 1947, they were the first animal American scientists ever sent into space. The goal was to measure the impact of cosmic radiation on living creatures. So the insects were placed inside a recovered Nazi V-2 missile and launched 67 miles, or 109 kilometers up, just past the altitude recognized as the border where space begins. The capsule then returned, parachuting down into New Mexico, where scientists waited. To their delight, the flies were still alive and had suffered no ill effects from radiation. Monkeys and apes also served as proto-astronauts. Albert II was the first in 1949, but due to a parachute failure, he sadly didn't survive. The Soviet Union sent a stray dog from Moscow named Laika into orbit in 1957, though it was a one-way trip. And the French sent a tuxedo cat named Filicette up in 63, she returned alive and well. But competition between the United States and the USSR over the space race, and all the scientific, technological, and military domination that went with it, heated up. The testing impact and radiation on animals wasn't the same as testing on humans. To make newer jet planes and rockets safe, American scientists had to get creative. At first, they used human cadavers, Turns out the public didn't care much for using the dead in such a way. Even a handful of scientists had difficulty with the moral and ethical use of human bodies. Enter Sierra Sam, the first crash test dummy invented in 1949. Sam tested aircraft seats, commercial and military, along with ejection seats, aviation helmets, and pilot restraint harnesses. Sam became so popular that he was mass-produced for automotive companies as well. Despite the use of crash test dummies, the U.S. Air Force still used animals into the 1950s. During the Cold War arms race, they'd come up with the B-58 Hustler, 
equipped to carry nuclear bombs, capable of Mach 2 flight and able to detect 50 different kinds of electronic failures, the plane proved difficult to control and maintain. That didn't mean the military planned to give up on it, though. It just needed a few tweaks, namely a way to eject safely. After designing a new system, it needed extensive testing. While human volunteers were used to test the device while it was on the ground, the Air Force decided not to use people, living or deceased, when it came to testing in flight. They chose to forego even crash dummies. No, they used bears. American black bears and Himalayan brown bears, to be more precise. The animals were sedated, strapped into the test capsules, and ejected from planes at a variety of speeds. The capsules would parachute to Earth, where they were collected isn't clear why the bears were used instead of crash dummies. All the bears survived the landing, though many suffered broken bones and internal injuries. The most famous was Yogi, a two-year-old black bear that was ejected from a U.S. Air Force B-58 going 870 miles an hour at 35,000 feet. The parachute deployed and for almost eight minutes, the unconscious young bear drifted to Earth. The Air Force thought recording the event would be good for public support. They were careful to tell the public that Yogi and the other bears got a good meal afterward, while awaiting a complete and thorough medical examination, of course. Unfortunately, they left out one important detail, that the bears, both healthy and injured alike, were euthanized and then autopsied. It was decades before the records of their true fate finally surfaced. But by then, the B-58 hustler was retired and the project had been brought to an end. American Shadows is hosted by Lauren Vogelbaum. This episode was written by Michelle Muto, researched by Ali Steed, and produced by Miranda Hawkins and Trevor Young, with executive producers Aaron Menke, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. To learn more about the show, visit GrimAndMild.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.